This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport. A smart and rugged 4x4 SUV engineered for your outdoor lifestyle. Inside the Bronco Sport are purpose-built features from an especially committed team. I would probably say I was four or something when I designed my first car officially. (laughs) Officially, I like that. That's interior design manager Scott Anderson, who was born and raised in Dearborn, Michigan, home of the Ford Motor Company. As a kid from Dearborn, right, like one of your biggest dreams would be to work on something like a Bronco. Scott's team was on a mission to craft an SUV that made it easier for people to enjoy their time outside. This had them developing features like two adjustable floodlights in the liftgate. So let's say you're pulling into a campsite, sun's going down, you want to set up camp. The lamps will shine 30 feet behind the vehicle and a few feet into the cargo area. So you can sort of lay out your tent, your cooking surfaces, get your fire started in a space where you can see what you're doing. Then there's the available five-way configurable rear cargo management system. You heard from a lot of people, geez, I got like all these wet snowboard boots and I got my sleeping bag, my backpacks, the dirty and wet stuff, need to stay separated from the dry stuff. The Clever system lets you create dividers and shelves for your gear. And when you get to base camp, it becomes a fold-out table. We thought it would be nice to be able to give people a place to have a clean, dry spot to fix something like their lantern or cooking stove. All these things are about promising people the ability to to be adventure ready at the drop of a hat. Learn more about the all-new Bronco Sport at Ford.com slash Bronco. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Have you ever met anyone who seems invincible? Like, no matter what crazy thing they do, they'll come out the other side alive and usually smiling. I have. A number of times, actually. Because that's what happens when you work at Outside Magazine for 20 years and you interview a whole lot of climbers and big wave surfers and base jumpers. Now, most of the athletes I've spoken to don't see themselves as invincible because they've had enough near-miss experiences or seen too many friends get hurt or even die. Sit down with someone whose life revolves around high-risk sports and ask them about risk, and they'll probably tell you about the moment when they realized that no matter how good they are at their sport, sometimes bad things happen. For the latest episode in our Wildfile series, producer Nora Sachs brings us the story of a talented athlete who has been forced to reckon with the fact that continuing to do what she loves means being willing to risk everything. Loss is powerful. For some of us, it can catapult our lives in a surprising new direction. It did for me. My dad died when I was 27, and I did a complete 180, from organic farming to journalism. For others, though, losing a loved one has the opposite effect, even more faithfully committing them to the path they've already chosen. And then there are people like adventure photographer, filmmaker, and climber Savannah Cummins. A year ago, her boyfriend, Nolan Smythe, died in a tragic accident while doing the one thing they both live for, rock climbing. And I still have dreams sometimes of where, like, Nolan just ran away and just, like, disappeared and was like... I want out of this life. I'm just going to take a break from everybody. (laughs) Um, But then I wake up and I'm like, 
Okay, remember what you saw. Remember he's dead. <laughs> Savannah was devastated. And since Nolan's death, she's been forced to re-examine the life she's chosen and the kinds of risks and consequences she was and still is willing to accept. This is a place where many serious mountain athletes end up, wondering if answering the call of the wild is really worth it. For Savannah, who's now 28, exploration and outdoor adventure are how she found purpose when she was a lot younger and a little bit lost. They like to call me a troubled teenager, kind of just doing normal teenager things, sneaking out, making out with boys, drinking alcohol, just kind of doing things that parents don't want their kids to do. Worried, her parents sent her away on an outward bound trip to spend a month canoeing the boundary waters in the wilderness of Minnesota. It was kind of this life-altering experience unexpectedly. I came out of it and was kind of like, I hate you, mom and dad. I will never sleep in a tent again. And about three weeks later, I ended up really missing it and missing just like the simplicity of life outside without any distractions. As soon as she turned 18, she moved west to Wyoming for a job outside. And on her days off, she started rock climbing. That's where she found a whole community of people who thrived on testing their physical and mental limits, just like her. Climbing is something that I can push myself to do. And it also takes me to beautiful places. And that's what I love about it. When a torn shoulder kept her grounded, she started taking photos of her friends. And the local climbing gym wanted to buy one. The first photo I sold, I sold it for $30 and was like, wow, this is food for the week. Maybe I can do this. Over the last seven or so years, Savannah has become a specialist in expedition photography. I'm typically going on like a six-week kind of immersive trip where I'm not necessarily connected to the outside world and... It's just me and my team there, and we're focused on one kind of specific objective. Savannah chronicled Katie Bono's speed record-setting climb of Denali, the tallest peak in North America. She traveled to Antarctica with the mountaineering legend Conrad Anker and climber filmmaker Jimmy Chin. On these and other trips, she's learned to judge dangers and make gut calls on just how much risk to herself and others she can tolerate. She's also ended up pretty far outside her comfort zone, and in some life-threatening situations. That was definitely the case in the summer of 2019, when she joined a team of elite female climbers, Sasha DeJulian and Angela Van Wiemersch, to document their attempt to scale a 1,200-foot volcanic tower on a remote island off the west coast of Central Africa. You know, I, I love climbing with both men and women, but for me, going on an all-female expedition is really empowering. It's just you know, awesome to climb with other women and kind of push yourself. The tower is known as Pico Calgrande, which in Portuguese means big dog peak. It's otherworldly looking, an imposing black spire rising straight up out of the misty tropical terrain. Yeah, it just it looked very like, I don't know, kind of Jurassic, Jurassic Parky, very, very out there. Do you remember what you were thinking and feeling before you embarked on this? I remember being really nervous before this trip because I had never experienced the jungle before and have only heard stories, a lot of horror stories about camera equipment getting getting ruined, just never being dry. There was also this big fear of the black cobras that are there. I'm not particularly scared of snakes. I, I actually love snakes, but... A black cobra that is a little bit sneaky and the most venomous, it, it seems, I don't know. I was, I was definitely on edge about it. She had good reason to be. First black cobra sighting. Oh my God, that is so disgusting. It's massive. 
Once the team reached the base of Pico Calgrande, it began to rain hard, and it didn't stop. Savannah says it was like a waterfall every day. The humidity basically caused mold on all of my clothes because it was just so wet and so damp and we could never dry out. I actually got mold in my helmet as well. All that water also made the tower a lot more dangerous to climb. One day, after two and a half straight weeks of chipping away at the pillar in the pouring rain, Sasha was making her way up what looked like an easy pitch, while Angela and Savannah were below at the belay. All of a sudden, Sasha, who was above them, yelled out, You guys okay? Angela! Man, it, it just all happened so fast. Just There's like a lot of rumbling, and all I remember is ducking in and then a rock skimming the top of my helmet. After the rock came by, we yelled up to Sasha, and we're like, are you okay, are you okay? And she's like, are you guys okay, are you guys okay? And we're all okay, and then we start laughing because we're just like, wow, that was fucking crazy. Then I remember maybe like 10 minutes later, we're kind of coming out of that, that like, this is funny. We're laughing about this and being like, this is actually really dangerous. I almost just got killed. And I think Angela was kind of like, you have a mark on your helmet. Like that rock almost took off your head. And I think if I wouldn't have ducked in at that time, I would have, you know, been a decapitated person. We got back down and I think all, all were like, there's a lot of tension. Tension in the air was thick. And so we had a group discussion that evening about what to do. Do we keep going? Do we not keep going? We've had 17 days straight of rain. We've barely made any progress. Um, you know, we've only probably made it 300 feet off the ground total. And so we still had a lot of ways to go if we wanted to get to the top. You know, Sasha wanted to keep going. I didn't want to keep going necessarily. However, I was there to do a job and it wasn't my say. So it was this kind of, I don't know, this this tough thing to really think about. Like, is my life worth filming this? Is my life worth putting myself in these kind of sketchy, dangerous positions? The next morning, the team looked at GoPro footage showing that the rock which almost took out Savannah was the size of a microwave. Meanwhile, it kept on raining. This time, the women decided to play it safe and made the hard decision together to bail. Once we had started to pack our bags and kind of set into the reality that we were going home early and giving up on this, we got a weather report that there was supposed to be a clear day of weather the following day. And we were like, no. <laughs> Why now? Are you kidding me? We've already packed up everything. Why is the weather going to be clear now? Savannah says by then, she was over it. But she had already made up her mind that if Sasha and Angela were going to try to climb the tower, she was going with them. I don't know. Maybe my ego had something to do with it. Like, if the girls went to the top and I was just the photographer that sat on the ground was too scared. I mean, that ultimately isn't that cool of a story. <laughs> the team started their bid for the summit the following day at 2 a.m. They would end up taking 36 hours to reach the top and spending a sleepless night on the way up crammed together on a small ledge. But finally, they made it. And as far as they know, they're the first women to do so. Woo! The summit! Jungle bushwhack. 
Go team, go! Boom! Sab! Yay! <laughs> we made it! We did! <laughs> we have to get down now. Okay, let's uh, get it was one of the least impressive summits I've ever been to the top to, yet one of, I don't know, maybe my proudest moments. Just kind of pushing through all the suffering and all the like mental blocks and, you know, the physical challenges of being wet and being cold and being tired and hungry and being scared as well. And even though I didn't climb it, just getting to the top was still such an accomplishment for myself. And I know the girls were also incredibly happy to be on top as well. But at that point, we were only halfway done. On the way down, they hit more snafus, like having to rappel through the area that they had pooped the night before, getting their rope stuck, landing in a tree. Savannah says with all the hazards and mishaps, this expedition taught her how to trust herself and her teammates on a whole new level. That close call with a microwave-sized rock was also a major turning point. In any kind of like adventure or action sports, like you kind of get to this point where maybe you start to think you're a little bit invincible when things go right for so long. And then and then something bad happens and then you're like, oh, wait, I'm not invincible. And you take a step back. And that was kind of what happened on this trip for me is, you know, I took a step back and was like, OK, wait, I'm not invincible. Like, I got to be careful. Even if I am being careful, I'm still not invincible. When you stop and think about what you really want in an SUV, it's a vehicle that lets you get the most out of your adventures. For Scott Anderson and the other designers of the all-new Ford Bronco Sport, that meant crafting the interior to be the ideal mobile base camp, no matter what you like to do outside. You know, we looked at surfers in California and watched them sitting by the side of the road in their vehicle, changing out of their wetsuits, Sort of like, geez, what can we do in the back of the vehicle to help these people enable that experience for them to be better? After a lot of experimenting, Scott's team came up with an answer. They'd create a pole bar for the rear lift gate that was engineered to fit hangers. Let's try and see if we can make this thing the right size to be able to hang a hanger, which allow people to put a wetsuit on it and dry it off. And it sounds really mundane, but most bars that close the gates in most vehicles right now are too small to put a hanger through. Step inside a Bronco Sport, and you'll find all kinds of smart and unexpected features, like available storage under the second row seats, and even a built-in bottle opener in the cargo area. This is what you get when you ask your customers what they really need, and then listen to them. Okay, I want a carabiner hook here, and I want to put some rubber mats here. All these little human-centered design exercises gave us all these really fruitful ideas for making little tiny features that amounted to big benefits for our particular customer. Learn more about the all-new Ford Bronco Sport at Ford.com slash Bronco. In Africa, Savannah Cummins learned a lot of tough lessons about trust, letting go, and what it's like to confront your own mortality head-on. But her hardest one was still to come. Savannah met Nolan Smythe in 2016 in the Red Rocks of southern Utah, doing what else but rock climbing in a cave. And they hit it off immediately. Nolan was kind of a tall, skinny guy, very lanky, very strong, 
He had this long, beautiful hair for a long time and then one day just decided to cut it off and had kind of a really funny haircut. And I was like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> and he cut it, had to cut it about three more times until it finally looked good. <laughs> but he just always had this goofy, goofy, big smile on, always laughing, always smiling. Just like her, he loved animals and adventuring. He was kind, never seemed to get stressed out. So whenever Savannah went to Moab over the next few years, they'd climb together. Can you tell me a little bit about, about your, your love story and your romance, like how that got started? Where do I start? I had spent the spring of 2019 in Moab, and I was going through a breakup. Nolan was also going through a breakup, and we both just wanted to climb all the time, and we also had a bunch of friends climbing with us all the time. And so anyways, we just started growing super close, spending all of our time together, and eventually it just got to the point where we were like, okay, there's obviously a lot of feelings here. It's not just a climbing relationship. And at first, that scared her. Because Nolan wasn't just an ambitious rock climber. He was also a base jumper. You know, those brave, some might say crazy souls who leap off bridges and cliffs, go into free fall, and then hope to hell their parachute deploys. Savannah was wary of falling in love with anyone who was pushing the boundaries in extreme sports. Recently, her best friend, Angela's boyfriend, vanished while on a climbing expedition in Pakistan. When Nolan and I started dating, that was something that I was very hesitant about. And I was very open about that and expressed it and was just like, you know, I don't want to go through what I saw my best friend go through. So you can't die before me. After a bad crash, Nolan actually agreed to stop base jumping for a while and focus on climbing instead. Sometimes they'd be working on a tough pitch when Savannah was too scared to lead. Typically, a climbing boyfriend would be like, I got this, like, I'll take the lead. And Nolan just wouldn't say anything, which would kind of annoy me because I'd be like, can't you see him struggling right now? Like, come on, help me. But he just wouldn't say anything, which would ultimately push me to try hard and push myself. Plus, he'd send her tons of really cute daily videos like this one. Hi, sweetie. I'm really dirty right now. I'm just covered in dirt. I miss you. And this one. Um, I love you. I know I've been just lazy with my shaving, but whatever. All right. I hope you're having a great time. Good job on all your roots today. You're getting so strong. Okay, bye. There was just so much unconditional love between us. In early 2020, Savannah was finalizing plans to make a film of Sasha DeJulian climbing a remote, 3,000-foot-tall rock wall in northern Mexico known as El Gigante, or The Giant. And since it was a climb that she and Nolan had been discussing for years, she hired him and his buddy Aaron Livingston to rig the route before she got there. So their job in rigging was basically to hike to the top of the mountain with all the rope and then rappel in and permanently fix well, semi-permanently fix the rope on the wall so that when we showed up, there was already rope on the wall ready to go that we could just rappel down and shoot and access and not have to deal with when we have so many other things that we're dealing with. So Nolan and Aaron's job was basically just to make my life easier. However, they also really wanted to climb this. So it was kind of a cool thing because it was a way for them to get paid to go do this dream climb that they've wanted to do for a really long time. As planned, Nolan and Aaron arrived in Mexico ahead of Savannah and Sasha. They carried a satellite phone so they could send updates every day. And even when it started to snow, Nolan kept telling her how much fun they'd be having together. This is from a video Aaron took. Woo! End of day one. 
Team send on the 12D. Second tries. Yeah. Back to back, that's what I'm talking about. Nice job, dude. I'm so psyched. This is so much fun. About a week before Savannah was due to rendezvous with Aaron and Nolan on top of El Gigante and kiss her boyfriend one last goodbye before the guys headed home, she was hanging out with some friends in Utah when she got a text message from Aaron. Saying that Nolan had fallen and his rope was cut. I, I don't remember the text saying that he was dead, just that he had fallen and Aaron needed help. I kind of responded being like, you're joking, because those boys are super goofballs and um, joke about a lot of stuff. But then I quickly realized that's not something that they would joke about. And so I specifically remember getting the text message and then kind of like sitting down on the ground and just repeating, my boyfriend just died, my boyfriend just died. Just in shock. Is this real? Like, did this really just happen? Slowly, from the delayed sat phone messages, the details trickled out. The guys had finished rigging the route and were working their way back up to the top of the giant. It was dark out, and so they were climbing by headlamp at this point. They had made a goal to try to get to a certain point on the wall. They got to pitch 14, which is about halfway up, 1,500 feet off the ground. Nolan was leading. And he got up onto a ledge and was standing on this ledge, and the ledge broke beneath his feet. The ledge that he was standing on was pretty massive. I mean, you could stand there and not really use your hands, it sounded like. And it basically just cut his rope right beneath where he was, um, which is the absolute worst case scenario in climbing. I mean, it's so sad just because there is no user error, which is typically how people injure or die in climbing. It's, it's usually user error. There's no user error. They did nothing wrong. It was just, yeah, worst possible case scenario that could have happened. The fact that it was at night was good for Aaron just not having to witness the fall and just kind of seeing his headlamp go by and that's kind of the last memory it sounds like he has is just seeing the headlamp fly by him then 1500 feet below the light went out was there a moment that you remember that you actually like started to to feel what had happened or where it was in your body or were you numb for a long time i was numb for a long time i i think the first night i I didn't, I don't remember really crying. I'm not, I'm not a super um, emotional person. I don't cry that much and don't like to share my feelings in front of many people either. And so I remember just being like very strong, very focused, very like, okay, we need to get this rescue happening. Like that's all that matters to me right now. Nolan's dead, but we need to go rescue his body. And that's the only thing that matters. The next morning, she was on a plane to Chihuahua. And that's when it started to sink in. It was the first time I really cried. It was the first, um time I just like broke down and realized that I, I'm not going to be able to call him anymore. I'm not going to be able to see him anymore. Um, I'm not going to be able to sleep next to him anymore. And kind of just like all those feelings rush, rushed into my head. And it was just like, you know, the one person I want to call right now is Nolan to talk about this crazy accident. And I can't because he's gone. Savannah says it was an absolute nightmare for the friends and family trying to recover Nolan's body and rescue Aaron because of all the logistics involved. She ended up hiring a private helicopter and flew right into the canyon towards El Gigante. Nolan probably would have been like, ah, just leave me down there. I'm fine. I love it down here. But which is what a lot of people say as well. They're just like, just leave me behind. Which sure, maybe that's what what he would have wanted. But ultimately, he's dead. And I wanted to see him and be in that place and have some closure that way. When they found Nolan's body at the base of the wall, 
She stayed by his side for hours until the Mexican military arrived to help retrieve him. Yeah, I just kind of sat there, held his hand, and talked to him a bit. And it just, it brought a lot of closure. Just knowing that, like, you know, he's, he's dead. Whereas I think if I didn't have that, it wouldn't have been as real. And I would have questioned, like, everything. Unfortunately, Savannah went from one nightmare straight into another. You know, I, I flew back from rescuing Nolan and there was no toilet paper in any of the stores and everyone was going on lockdown. It was March 2020. COVID-19 had just been declared a global pandemic. It was just a crazy time to come back from losing Nolan. And then also, like, the world just stopped. Like, it wasn't just my world stopped. It was everyone's world just stopped. That meant initially, Savannah didn't have to face the duality so many others who have lost loved ones in the mountains ascribed to her, of seeing everyone else just going out, being happy, the world carrying on as usual, while they were enveloped in grief. The, the entire world was grieving. Not, with, not for Nolan, necessarily, but in their own way. Still, for the first couple months, Savannah says she felt profoundly alone. She couldn't travel to be with the people she loved. I wasn't working. I, I didn't know, like, am I, am I ever going to be able to work again? Am I ever going to be able to climb again? Am I going to be able to get back to doing what I love? And while she was stuck inside all day, every day, that wheel of what-ifs would be spinning. What if this happened? What if that happened? How could I have made this different? How could I have saved him? Um, what if he didn't die? What would we be doing right now? And that's what's been really hard to wrap my mind around is like, you know, feeling like I put him in this position of, I know he wanted to do this climb so badly, but I don't know if he would have done it if I hadn't gotten this entire trip paid for. Maybe someone else would have gone before him and the same thing could have happened, or maybe he went later and it didn't snow on top of them and the rock was more solid. I think ultimately the rock was just super loose from the moisture sitting behind it. Mercifully, summer came. Work picked up a little. Savannah adopted two cats. And like everyone else, she had to figure out how to deal with the coronavirus. For her, that meant going back to taking some risks she wasn't sure she'd ever be able to stomach again. I kind of just had this attitude of, well, I'm probably going to cli die climbing. I'm not going to die from COVID. So I'm going to just start to live my life right now because... I need to do what's best for my mental health right now, which is to go play in the mountains and play outside. But being in the wilderness and out rock climbing was harder now, more complicated. Sometimes I'll have flashbacks to seeing him, um, which can be difficult, and just kind of imagining like what could happen and how much I don't want anyone else to go through that as well. When that happens, she tries to block it all out and just focus on what's right in front of her, where each hand and each foot need to land next. They say that's why, like, short-term memory loss is what makes good climbers, too, because you kind of forget about all the suffering, and I definitely think I've got some of that going on. One year after Nolan's freak and fatal accident, Savannah says things aren't necessarily easier, just different. These days, she's no longer cycling through all the what-ifs. She realizes she'll never be able to make sense of Nolan's death. But I think the one thing that I have come to terms with is that the only thing certain in life is that we're all going to die. There's pretty much no other certain thing. And so I, I think that's just 
what I've really come to terms with is that, you know, nothing could have prevented this. And whether he died that day, he could have also died the following day or the following day or 20 years later. Like, it's just something that's going to happen to all of us. After talking to Savannah about Nolan for a while, what came through much more than fatalism was that there's lots of scar tissue forming across this deep wound, that she's in it, remapping her own relationship to risks of all kinds, to her body and to her heart, working out how to go on living her life the only way she knows how, knowing that we're all going to die. I've been in a roller coaster of emotions for this past year, and losing Nolan was definitely my biggest fear. And I think moving forward, I'm going to be pretty guarded with my heart, with ever like dating anybody again or becoming close with people again, just because I don't want to go through this process ever again. But at the same time, I know that I'm going to have to go through this process again. People are going to continue to die every single day. And so, I don't know, I don't know if I've quite wrapped my mind around how I'm going to deal with it when it happens again. Am I going to just be numb to it or am I going to go through another emotional roller coaster of losing a loved one? I have no idea. And yet in almost the same breath, she acknowledges how essential human connection is to her and how much more precious it feels now. Relationships are what brings so much happiness to my life. My relationship with my family, my relationship with my friends, my relationship with Nolan's family, like... All of that brings so much joy to my life. And I think if I don't grow close to people, I'm going to be missing out <laughs> in, in life a lot. You know, it's not, for me, climbing is, is really important because it's the people that I climb with. It's not necessarily the climbing. It's the people that make it great. And so I think if I block out and try not to get close to people, I'm not going to enjoy life or climbing as much. So yeah, Savannah continues to climb rocks and mountains and wild and dangerous places, returning to what for her entire adult life has been a source of healing, solace, sanity, and more recently, unspeakable pain. Her friend, the late Hayden Kennedy, described climbing as either a beautiful gift or a curse. After Nolan died, she says she's been wrestling with that paradox. You know, losing Nolan was really hard, and do I want to keep doing this? Like. Is this worth it? But ultimately it is because it's what I love to do. The people that I love also love to climb. And I would just, I would, I think I would lose my identity if I didn't climb. I wouldn't know what to do or where to go or what, what to be or, yeah, I would have so many questions and I'd feel really lost without climbing. Savannah doesn't think she'll ever stop climbing, but her goals and her approach are definitely shifting. Now that the worst has happened and she's had to face her biggest fear, she says she's going to be even more careful and really weigh the risk versus the reward. You know, my, my risk tolerance has probably gone down some from these, these, two, these two incidents in my life, you know, coming close to almost dying and then losing my partner. Like, I think I going back into the mountains, I'm going to be a little bit more wary of what I do and... and because I, I do want to live. I don't want to die. I know that we're all going to die, but that's not... I want to live for as long as I can. The thing is, when Savannah's partner, Nolan Smythe, died last year at age 26, their love story and their connection didn't end. His body was cremated, 
and she keeps some of his ashes in a little glass container which fits in her backpack, her chalk bag, and her pocket. I basically carry him around with me everywhere I go. And taking him to new places and going climbing and you know, spreading some of his ashes at the top of a new mountain or a new place that I go is always something really special because I know that he would have wanted to go to all these places with me. That was Savannah Cummins speaking with producer Nora Sachs. To find out more about Savannah and to see some of her work, check out her website, savannahcummins.com. This episode was produced by Nora Sachs and edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music for our Wild Files series is by Louis Weeks. This episode was brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport a smart and rugged 4x4 SUV engineered for adventure. Learn more at Ford.com slash Bronco.